Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, Doug Ford government made it official uh, yesterday. The uh, government, of course, uh, made this promise during the election campaign. They've decided to halt the planned increase to the minimum wage that was scheduled for next year. Uh, And there are some ramifications to that and some people scratching their heads because of some of the data that has become available to us uh, since June. Tom Cooper, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, joins us to talk about this. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Good to see you. Hey, good to see you, Bill. I've got to tell you up front, I, I know what was said during the campaign, mm-hmm. but there have been a couple of studies that have been released subsequent to that uh, that have indicated that, yeah, you know, about the, all that stuff about people are going to lose jobs and we're going to shut down. The total opposite has happened. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And we've seen phenomenal growth here in Ontario. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm going around shopping, going into... Uh, re- retail outlets or, or fast food places, there's always signs up, help wanted. Um, so this hasn't had a negative impact on the inter- Ontario economy. Raising the minimum wage by uh, $2.40 as it, as it was in January has had a very positive impact on, on spending. People are who were, uh, you know, quite frankly, struggling, uh, have a little bit more disposable income now to buy uh, goods and And guess services. what? They're spending it in those businesses. They are. And that's helping to create jobs and that's helping to create growth. And so to turn around now and say you're going to freeze the minimum wage is absolutely the opposite of what you want to do. Well, it's a philosophical decision. I it mean, is. that's what it came down to. I mean, because the numbers simply say that this actually helped the economy. It does. Uh, businesses up. Now, I know I'm going to hear from small businesses say, oh, it hurt, it hurt. It might have. It's, it, there's never a 100% either good or bad on situations like this. But numbers from the conference board and other institutions that don't have a political bent have all said that, yeah, you know, that was much ado about nothing, that this was going to kill the economy. Yeah. Uh, the businesses are up. Job creation has been up. Uh, and and you'd think, you know what? This is riding the cried. I'd love to see a politician say, you know what, I, that's what I thought, but this is the reality. Let's give this a shot. But he doesn't want to do that. Yeah, and I, I think this is a story we've seen uh, before, particularly over the last couple of months, where despite lack of evidence to the contrary, uh, they are saying that uh, they are uh, you know, not interested in looking at the data. And we had this with the basic income pilot project where we know people were thriving on the program. We've seen it with the minimum wage. There's 1.7 million people in Ontario who received a, wa- a wage increase as a result of the increase uh, in January. And they are doing much better, but they're still not escaping poverty completely. And and so that's why we needed to increase uh, the minimum wage up to $15 and then increase it by inflation after that. Um, to, to freeze it at $14, I think, is going to have a negative impact, not only on those families who are are already struggling and trying to make ends meet. Uh, many workers are out there uh, working two or three part-time jobs, not getting enough hours, but at least with a little bit more of a hourly wage, you can you can start to uh, meet the needs of yourself and your family. Um, but to to freeze that fourteen dollars, uh, people are going to start falling back again into into desperate situations, and we have a, a serious problem with precarious employment, with working poverty in this province. And uh, this uh, decision by the provincial government just makes me scratch my head. Most people that are on minimum wage uh, and earning that uh, don't take that extra increase and go buy GICs. Uh, they don't. They can't afford to. They need it to live yep. day to day. Yep. So they spend it. So all these, for instance, these grocery store chains that were saying, oh, we're going to have to lay people off. That's going to be here. Uh, they go spend it at those grocery stores. Those grocery stores are doing fine, thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, you know, Metro and all these other places that thought they were going to be massive layoffs. It, it just didn't come to pass. And, and uh, the concern that you've got right now is if you're going to freeze this and the cost of living continues to rise, and it will, uh, they're behind the eight ball again. Yeah. And and the alternative I want to talk to you about as well, because yesterday uh, the minister in charge uh, suggested uh, that uh, what Mr. Ford had promised on the campaign was probably going to happen, was they're going to offer tax breaks for uh, for low income. Uh, first of all, when you do the math, uh, the tax break's not nearly as much as the, the minimum wage increase is, so they lose right off the bat. The other element to that, of course, is it depends on whether or not you qualify for the tax break. Exactly. And we know with uh, an increase of $1 in the minimum wage from $14 to $15, that puts $1,800 in workers' pockets uh, over the course of a year. The tax break Mr. Ford is talking about only provides 
$800 a year. And, and so already people are, are falling further behind. And you're absolutely right. Uh, some workers may not qualify for it. And, you know, here again, is it better uh, to ensure that we all, you know, pay our fair share, including businesses who, you know, uh, some may argue and some may be struggling. You're absolutely right. But as a whole, Ontario businesses right now are making more money than they ever have. And uh, the economy is stronger than it has been. And um, I think workers need to have some of those benefits passed on to them because they have been struggling for far too long. Well, there's another element to this. And I've talked to people that are in the, the situation, some of them working a couple of jobs to try to make ends meet and pay the rent and, and buy some groceries. And, and governments, not just this one, but other governments that have said, well, we're going to give you some tax breaks on this. It doesn't help them because that's when you do your taxes. That's, that's once a year. You look at that and say, okay, I might get a little bit of money back. But what about now? I mean, you know, tomorrow, this is the end of the month. The rent's due. Yeah. I need that money now. I don't want to wait until February when I file my taxes. It's not going to do me any good then if I get kicked out of the apartment because I don't have the money. They need it on it every two weeks. They need that increase, and that's not going to happen now. Yeah, exactly. And we know uh, the housing situation is is very serious. Uh, we're in, we're in crisis for many uh, many low income earners and many people on fixed incomes simply can't afford the the rent increases we've been seeing in Hamilton. Hamilton's actually had one of the highest rent rental increases uh, anywhere in in the country over the last few years. Um, well, you guys just did a forum on that. We did. We did. We brought together uh, municipal candidates who are running in, in this uh, October's election and uh, gave them a briefing on a number of uh, housing-related issues from uh, uh, from how to get new affordable housing built in, in Hamilton to looking at protecting tenants uh, from getting kicked out of affordable units and, and preventing homelessness. Um, so these all combine really to... In, to really encourage the government to continue uh, the direction it was moving in, uh, to in improve the minimum wage, improve other social programs so people can afford those basic necessities in life. Uh, look at Alberta. Uh, they are, their economy is getting stronger again. They've also just increased their minimum wage to $15 an hour. And again, uh, restaurants, uh, small retail outlets are, are doing very well. And, you know, those are the sectors that hire the vast majority of, of low-wage workers. And, and they're actually seeing benefits from having increases in the minimum wage. It's it's a double whammy, I guess, and what's concerning an awful lot of people. I mean, when they, they killed the Guaranteed Income Project, uh, that was bad enough because it's left a whole lot of people high and dry. Now, they still haven't decided whether or not they're going to try to make them whole. We'll see what happens. Obviously, somebody's got to have to make an announcement about that sooner than later. But but for folks that are thinking, hey, but there's some relief, maybe I can climb out of this hole, where's their hope now? Yeah, the, the hope certainly hasn't been present from this uh, current provincial government. Uh, it's great to talk about about tax breaks. It's it's great to look at reducing uh, the cost of, uh, cost of gas uh, for, for low-wage workers, but we know a lot of low-wage workers can't even afford cars. Um, you know, they're taking public transit. And uh, so how do we make life more affordable for them? And certainly in improving uh, improving their wages, which, you know, had been uh, increased a, a very modest amounts over the last five or six years until January, uh, when we saw an increase of $2.40, um, you know, was was really wreaking havoc with people's lives, being able to balance paying, paying rent, uh, buying medication uh, for themselves and their kids, because a lot of low-wage workers don't have benefits plans. And, and so when it comes to getting sick and getting medication, that has to come out of their pocket, out, out, of, their, out of their paycheck. Uh, we know many families are struggling with childcare. We know many families uh, simply don't have the financial resources to meet all their basic needs and are falling deeper and deeper into debt as a result. Um, so by increasing the minimum wage, we're, we're actually not only improving the bottom lines of those workers, we're enabling them to buy the things they need in their lives, the goods and services, the food, the rent, uh, the other essentials, and, and ensuring that they're not falling into debt, which could lead to far worse economic situations for individuals and societies down the road. Well, when we were talking, then going back to the, uh, the Guaranteed Income Project, 
Uh, I, I mean, you brought a couple of folks in here that were part of the program a couple of months ago before it got canceled. Uh, and one of them was telling a wonderful story about the fact that, you know, the, the money that they had right now, they actually used towards tuition to go back to school and get, improve their, their skills and their working hours. So, so sh- you know, I won't need this eventually. Well, now that individual's just, they're out in the cold. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. We've, we've heard from the provincial government that the basic income pilot will continue until March 31st, uh, which I think they only agreed to because of the out, outstanding pressure we've seen right across the province and, and from leaders here in, here in Hamilton as well. Um, but certainly people who are promised a three-year um, project uh, to have that cut out from under them is, is incredibly unfair, but, but it also... Uh, it, it laid waste to many of the plans they had uh, to go back to school, to improve the, their lives, to get additional training so they could get better jobs. Well, I talked to the folks here, some of the people on the program here. We talked to the coordinator from Lindsay, which was one of the other test sites. Yeah. And I got to tell you, Tom, nobody was saying, oh, thank God, now I can buy that condo in Florida. <laughs> That's not where they were going with this. No, no, they were trying to stabilize their housing. Um, so so some people did move to, to more uh, safer, uh, more... Uh, sustainable housing, uh, but no, nobody was getting a mortgage out of the deal. It was it was really about trying to uh, uh, provide yourself with a financial foundation so you can move on and and really escape poverty. And that's what this was all about. The basic income was testing whether people could move out of poverty, get healthier, eat better food um, in in terms of uh, healthier. Uh, um, you know, sort of non, uh, non-high carb, cheap food that uh, people living in poverty are often forced to have. And as a result, that wreaks havoc with their health as well. So basic income was, was really beneficial from that perspective. But the other incredible thing about basic income was we know 70% of participants were actually working. They just weren't earning enough at their jobs to, to make ends meet and pull themselves or their families out of poverty. And that's, you know, why it, it's really questionable how you can cancel a basic income pilot at the same time as you're <laughs> canceling an increase to the minimum wage because both aspects are, are going to have far uh, more detrimental effects on workers and the health of communities. And listen, there's always pushback on this, and, and I'll, I'll get emails and tweets about this saying, oh, you're just trying to, you know, picture and, 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 and color the, the, the PCs as a bunch of cold-hearted SOBs that don't care. And, and I'm not doing that at all. I know that, P, that they have their best interest for the province, et cetera. But there's a, there's a disturbing narrative here, Tom, mm-hmm. even just since they've taken office. Uh, you're not going to get that increase from the minimum wage. Uh, that uh, guaranteed income program, that's gone. Uh, they've even canceled the increases for social assistance programs that yep. were scheduled to take a kick into place in the next uh, year as well. Yep. Uh, and, and it's it's basically that that narrative that's developing here right now with these announcements is basically if you're one of these people that are challenged in this province, and there is a lot of them, uh, too bad. Yep. You're on your own. Yep. And, and that's not right. I, I, I'm all for doing something about the debt, and we all know that the previous government uh, it was time to go. We yep. all know that for a variety of reasons. But at the same time, there's not just a financial responsibility, but you've got a moral responsibility to look after the well-being of, of people in this province that are doing their damnedest to try to, to, to better themselves. If you're truly going to be a government for the people, then you have to be a government for all the people. And that includes people who are struggling and um, people particularly uh, who are working at minimum wage jobs are doing everything we tell them to do. They're, they're out there, they're, they're, they're finding work, uh, they're maybe working two or three part-time jobs. They're just not earning enough at those jobs to make ends meet. And, and to throw them under the bus um, when they're doing everything they should be is, is reprehensible. Um, let's try to lift everybody up. But, you know, if we're going to start... Let's start with the people who need our help. Um, Certainly not the big corporations who already have some of the lowest tax rates anywhere in the world. Let's start with the people who need the help. Let's increase the minimum wage. Let's get the, uh, let's get that additional economic activity going and and see what it does for our economy. The first six months of 2018 already showed that a $2.40 increase in the minimum wage was doing wonders for the economy. Think of what could have happened if it had gone up to 15. 
But there are numbers here that already substantiate that. That's one of the things that I think that bothers me and, and some of the others that have seen some of these announcements is is I understand that there's a, a, a political philosophy at play here. Every party that gets elected has their own political philosophy. But there are hard and fast numbers. There is data here that basically saying that's not really the direction we should be going in now. Yeah. The, um, the, data, the data I'm looking at, you know, and we have here in Hamilton and, and right across the province, we have a lot of great employers who've, who've committed on their own. Uh, to increase wages, and they're part of the living wage initiative. Uh, living wage is a bit of a different calculation than minimum wage. It's based on the actual cost of living, uh, based in in local communities on what workers need to earn at their jobs to to make ends meet. And and we've seen many employers step up because they want to be part of the solution. They want. Uh, to ensure that their workers can meet their basic needs and also contribute uh, not only to the local business, uh, which helps their bottom line, uh, because workers who are earning more are are happier, they're more productive, and they stay involved. Um, it, it also helps the local economy, as we've talked about, though. When, when workers are earning more, that's money spent locally on goods and services. It's helping to drive economic growth. And, and so if the government isn't willing to talk to those business owners who, who have committed uh, to, to pay living wages, um, I'm, I'm not really sure what their end objective is in all of this. Um, it's great to uh, it, it, it's great to have lower tax rates, yeah. But if, um, if if we're paying on the other side in in additional health costs because we know people who are experiencing poverty get sicker, if we're paying uh, because people are are becoming homeless because they can't afford their rents, um, these all have huge costs for society down the road, and we're not helping ourselves in the end. Well, the, and again, it was bothersome. Even when the, the previous government announced that this was going to be happening, and this was the, the first wage increase that kicked in at the beginning of this year, uh, the corporate response I, was bothersome. Uh, and, and let's face it, I'll name names. Tim Hortons was maybe one of the most egregious. You know, you, you're you not going to get your benefits anymore. You're going to have to pay for your uniforms. You're going to have to uh, – and, like, where's the compassion? Yeah. And, and you expect that from the government. And, and yeah, you know, the government's going to have to make some tough financial choices here. We get that. But why is it always the low income and the challenge people that seem to bear the brunt of, of that? And I think even Tim Hortons acknowledges now that they were wrong. Yeah. Uh, they're acknowledging that the increase in the minimum wage actually has had a positive effect on, on their local business because more people are going in buying coffee. And, and that's helping to drive, drive their economic uh, case as well. And, you know, you, you drop by a Tim Hortons anywhere around, more times than not, you're going to see a sign in the window saying uh, full-time, part-time positions available, apply within. And we're seeing all of the, these signs at all sorts of retail outlets. Um, so I, I think the, the knee-jerk reaction often from, from business is that this is going to hurt us. Um, well, we said that from the Ontario Chamber. Exactly. But at the same time, we know there are very positive side benefits to increasing wages, and, and it helps the economy as a whole. And we've seen it in, in a few places in the States. We're seeing it now in Alberta. Ontario's falling behind. And, you know, we were, we were leading um, in, in many of these discussions, uh, you know, a short time ago on, on basic income, on increasing the minimum wage, and, and now we've dropped the ball on both of those. And, and so people are scratching their heads and, and wondering what's next. Tom Cooper, thanks as always. Great to see you again. Let's keep the, uh, the discussion going. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The president of the Ontario Medical Association is in town today in Hamilton to discuss health care issues and also the uh, recreational marijuana issue with local physicians. Uh, taking a break uh, from a number of meetings that she's got scheduled today to talk with us, which is always uh, a welcome pleasure. Dr. Nadia Alam, president of the OMA, welcome back to the Bill Kelly Show. It's good to talk with you, doctor. Hi, Bill. Call me Nadia. Uh, okay, I will. Thanks so much. Uh, <laughs> let, what's, what's the purpose of the trip today? So the trip today is part of the Ontario Medical Association president for the OMA, the Ontario Medical Association holds a tour over the fall from September to December where the president of the Ontario Medical Association goes around from community to community, visits with doctors, gives them an update not just on the OMA, but also finds out what is going on in their communities. Now, I've beefed it up a lot more this year. I'm making more stops, north, south, everywhere in Ontario, 
um, that I can, making community stops, clinic stops, all that sort of thing to get a better sense of what's going on with healthcare. We know healthcare was a priority during the election. That has not gone away. So I want to know, as of today, what is going on in Hamilton? Oh, and, and you're going to be meeting with a number of people in that regard. Uh, because Absolutely. it's multifaceted, Nadia. I mean, we can talk about, you know, obviously, funding, uh, hospital funding, a hospital possible expansion here in Hamilton. There's been some discussion about that. Uh, mm-hmm. The number of beds that are available. It, it's, it's not a one-size-fits-all, isn't it, as you go from uh, town to town? Not at all. Healthcare is kind of like a giant puzzle. There are all these pieces that interlock with one another that fit to create a bigger picture. And if you only focus on one piece, like you said, Bill, you're not going to solve the entire puzzle. So we have to look at all of the pieces, how they work, and move away from Band-Aid solutions to more holistic solutions. I mentioned uh, medical marijuana, uh, recreational marijuana. Medical marijuana, of course, has been for some time. Uh, we're only a few weeks away from that. Uh, what are the concerns of the association about, about that and the ramifications that could occur? So, as you said, recreational marijuana is recre- or recreational cannabis, as it's also called, is a totally different ballgame than medical marijuana. Medical marijuana is a very distilled substance that's sold in either pills or oil, um, and that does not produce the high that you get from recreational cannabis or recreational marijuana. Recreational cannabis has certain harms associated with it. At the end of the day, we know this legalization is happening. What we want to do, what Ontario's doctors want to do, is make sure our patients are informed so that they can make a good choice. They can make a proper decision about what they want to do with their health. It's kind of like smoking and drinking alcohol. You want your patient to be as informed as possible. Uh, I, I want to ask you about the medical marijuana situation, if I could, for a second, Nadia, because we have, mm-hmm. uh, especially here in Hamilton, I mean, there's a, an a opioid crisis that's national, it's international, really, I suppose, but the numbers here in Hamilton are disturbingly higher than the provincial average, so we've got some work to do on that. Uh, but there's yeah. another element to that discussion that I think directly impacts the OMA, and, and that's pain management. Uh, a number of the people that are getting hooked on this stuff right now start off very innocently in, in a pain management program, and, and obviously the addiction starts to come in from that. Uh, and medical marijuana has been described as an alternative to opioids when it comes to pain management. What's the OMA's position on that? The OMA doesn't officially have a position on it. We have a number of physicians who are members of the Ontario Medical Association who work in this field. Um, and, and a lot of them say that the evidence is slowly coming out. Right now, it's unclear what role medical marijuana has to play in pain management. We know that it has a role to play in, say, uh, management of nausea and vomiting after chemotherapy, so in cancer treatment. So we know there's an established role there. It's always been helpful there. We're, we're unsure where exactly it fits into the chronic pain picture. We're cautious about it because, again, we've learned, if nothing else that we've learned from the opioid crisis, you got you got to take it one step at a time. You also have to look at alternative strategies to pain management that have nothing to do with medication, things that patients can do to help control their medication because things like exercise, things like mindfulness, um, meditation, swimming, tai chi, those have been proven to help with chronic pain management. I mean, they're, again, they're a piece of the puzzle, and they have no side effects. Well, they have I, no risks. Yeah, I, I think you and I have talked in the past about my knee replacements. I had them done a couple of years yeah. apart. The first one, I uh, didn't use a whole lot of common sense and figured, ah, rehab, who needs rehab? Uh, and it was a very painful exercise. The second one, uh, I started the rehab just after the, the replacement surgery, and it's a world of difference. You're absolutely right. I mean, getting ahead of that and being proactive as opposed to reactive is, is part of that. And, and, and that has to be part of the treatment. That has to be part of the discussion with the patient, doesn't it? Absolutely. There are so many, th- there are so many things that patients can do to help empower themselves to make good choices and to heal better. They, they don't realize that they actually have a lot of options not just medications. Medications are, again, a piece of the puzzle, but you also have all the other things. And if you use everything else, your reliance on medication decreases. It's kind of like the person who gets diagnosed with high blood pressure. If they don't exercise, if they don't stop smoking, if they don't stop drinking, if they don't live a healthier life, it won't matter how many pills you throw at them. Their blood pressure is going to be tough to control. But if they do all of those other lifestyle things, they'll actually drop their reliance on medications. They'll take more control of their life and their illness. 
But let me ask you about the, the, the physicians themselves, Nadia. We've had a problem and a concern here for quite some time about about the number of physicians uh, per student, per population, etc. Uh, and and we're getting sometimes conflicting reports about whether or not we're meeting those targets. Uh, are there enough doctors in in a city, for instance, like Hamilton? I'm, I'm talking about general practitioners right now. So for general practitioners in Hamilton, there are still a number of patients in Hamilton in the region that do not have a primary care doctor. And, and that's a huge thing. That is a shortage by definition because primary care, so family medicine, actually makes a big difference in patients' lives in terms of preventing illnesses um, and, and managing illnesses better. So once you do become ill, your family doctor is your go-to person. In Hamilton, Niagara, Haldimand, Brant, Lynn, there's about 100,000 people who do not have a family doctor. In Hamilton, the city itself, it's about 52,000. And this is from government data, so Ministry of Health as well. Um, those are troubling numbers. They really are. So, yes, there's definitely a shortage of doctors. A lot of it has to do with the current contract situation with the government. I mean, Ontario's doctors haven't had a contract now for five years. A lot of the previous government's rules made it impossible to start up family medicine clinics. So those are the kinds of things we need to change in the contract discussions with the new government. Well, you segue very nicely, Nadia, into what I was going to ask you about. But that, <laughs> the, the fact that they haven't had a contract for five years, because we've had those discussions over the last five years. Uh, new, new faces, new faces, new people in the corner office at Queen's Park right now. Have you had any discussion about that? So I've met with Christine Elliott, the health minister. She's lovely. Um, and she, she used to be the patient ombudsman. Mm-hmm. Her focus is aligned with ours in terms of improving access to care for patients. So I'm pleased about that. I'm not at the negotiation table. That's really where the, the rubber hits the road. Um, and, and I'm very curious to see what will happen. We're supposed to get an update soon. Right now, things are moving. It's slow. It's tough, which is, again, not surprising. The physician services budget alone is a very complex piece uh, of the healthcare budget. So we'll see. We'll see what comes out. The amazing thing is, in spite of the instability I still see physicians going the mile. Yesterday, I was in Kitchener. I visited a refugee health center, which was a labor of love by Dr. Mike Stevenson. And and he was fantastic. He started this clinic. He's working fee-for-service. He's seeing complex patients with multiple social needs. He's paying 75% overhead. And yet he goes back day after day after day because he loves his job. I saw the same thing when I was traveling up north from Temiskaming Shores to Perry Sound it just inspires me. It inspires me that despite this uncertainty, physicians are still stepping up. Well, and, and it's, those are gratifying stories, and, and they are heartwarming, and we need those sorts of people. But, you know, yeah. as, as we, we, you're also battling a myth here, too, and I'm sure you hear this, that, well, the doctors are these overpaid, they make tons of money, they take most of the, and, and, and you know, they forget the fact that if, especially family physicians are, are small businessmen. Business yep. women in the case. I mean, you know, that equipment doesn't come for free from the province. Uh, the staffing has to be paid. The rent has to be paid in the building, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a monumental financial commitment to actually open an office as a doctor. And and obviously, so when you know you talk about contracts, uh, you've got to look at at, at the, the 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 expenses, I guess, that are incurred in a situation like that, and the level of care that's given. It costs an awful lot of money, and, and obviously there's got to be uh, some reconciling with the provincial government about exactly what's going on. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know what? That myth about um, doctors not being worth their salt, it drives me crazy. It just drives me crazy whenever I hear it because I think it's not even true, and it's been perpetuated by the previous government, unfortunately. They, they added to it. Um, physicians... I mean, like I said, they go above and beyond to help their patients. Their hearts are in the right place. They're trying to do right by their patients. I'm not saying everybody's perfect. I'm a realist. I get not everybody's perfect, but everybody's in it. A lot of people are in it for the right reasons. And these office costs, they are mounting. I mean, the federal tax changes were a real hit to many physicians and their ability to save for maternity leave, save for retirement, save for bigger expenses to pay for um, their office. I mean, 
I've heard of office expenses. Well, I just told you about Mike Stevenson, how his office expenses are at 75% of his income going to that. Um, and and that's at a family doctor's rate. He, he's earning less than some TTC bus drivers, in fact, when he takes his, when he when you look at his take-home pay. Um, these These capital costs, so the costs of staffing, the costs of, Everything from carpets to chairs to computers to exam tables to medical equipment for outpatient surgery, they're insane. Th- these costs just keep rising year after year. So, yeah, we're definitely looking for stability from the Ontario government. We're nervous, though. I mean, you've heard the financial report as well as I. We're all nervous. Well, exactly. That's one of the concerns I've got. And I know one of the things you've been advocating for for a long time, Nadia, is a continuum of care in, in our health care system. Uh, you know, we always tend to think of hospitals, and that's primary care, but uh, support services like ta- long-term care facilities, hospice care, uh, at-home care, that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of governments talk the talk, and then they finally get it power, and it's just, well, we can't afford to do that right now. Uh, and it's it's really crippling the system. It really is. And there are costs to not addressing these needs. For patients, like some of my seniors who end up in hospital because they can't get into a nursing home, that's a cost of $1,000 a day. A nursing home is a fifth that amount. Like, it's a lot cheaper. So investing now pays off down the road in terms of lesser costs. And that's what makes me frustrated with the government. They're, they're focused on their current year's budget line. And, and I get why they do that, but at the same time, I wish they would understand. I feel like shaking them sometimes and saying, if you put up the money up front and actually fix the system in a, in a reasonable way, so find the efficiencies you need to, but invest where you have to, where the, the investments have to be identified. If you do that, there are savings downstream. That'll be much better. And at the end of the day, the only reason the healthcare system exists is to deliver health. If we're not doing that for our population, what exactly are these hospitals for? What exactly are these nursing homes for? Well, we have to serve the patients. It's our duty. It, well, exactly, and that has to be part of the discussion. I, I, I'm hopeful, uh, maybe it's pushing against what the better judgment, that, that they, this is a government that's going to sit down and listen to you. I, you mentioned uh, Minister Elliott, of course, who's in charge of this, who, is a, who has been a very passionate about health care in this province for quite some time during her time in public life, and as you mentioned, served as, as the patient advocate for quite some time. Uh, and you'd like to think that that's the sort of attitude that uh, they're going to bring to the table when they sit down and talk to you about what we need to do to make this a better system. Absolutely. I mean, that's the kind of attitude we need. I do have to say this, too. Having sat down with Dr. Devlin, um, I'm very excited to see what he will also bring to the conversation. He did amazing things with Humber River Hospital. Um, I want him to do amazing things with the healthcare system. He is in more of a consultant role, though. He will be giving advice to Christine Elliott. Um, so I'm curious to see what that advice will be. My hope is he's going to talk to the frontline workers. Well, so exactly the, the point I was going to make. The the nurses, everybody. Exactly. And I mean, that's, that's where you get your best information. They're the ones that are on the front lines, and they're the ones that see the concerns and the challenges. And you're doing that, obviously, with your, your provincial, provincial tour, and you'd like to think that the ministry is going to do that as well. I hope so. I hope they make the investment because it's worth it. It's worth hearing the stories, and it's worth understanding and seeing how different the needs of every community are. So a one-size-fits-all solution that's created in Queen's Park isn't necessarily going to be appropriate for Timmins or for Hamilton or for Windsor. A lot of questions, not enough answers at this stage. Uh, Nadia, (laughs) I I know how tight your schedule is and how busy the agenda is during this visit, so I'm going to let you go, but I do appreciate you taking some time for us today. Always a pleasure to have you on the program and uh, come back anytime. Bill, it was a pleasure to talk to you. I hope one day we can have coffee. I'd love to do that. Okay, take care, Nadia. Right, you take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Nadia Lam, president of the Ontario Medical Association, talking to local doctors about our health care concerns and challenges here in Hamilton. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. NAFTA negotiations uh, continuing, we're told. Uh, and, uh, well, yesterday the president, of course, uh, Donald Trump, made some uh, pronouncements about that. Uh, he uh, well, in, in a rather rambling press conference, uh, he uh, suggested, for instance, that uh, he had uh, turned down a one-on-one meeting with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. The Prime Minister's office, by the way, says that uh, there was never a request for one. Uh, but he went on and on and took some pretty big shots at the Prime Minister, at the NAFTA team, and, and the whole process in general. 
What we're probably going to do is call it the USMC, like the United States Marine Corps, which I love. General Kelly likes it even more. Where's General Kelly? He likes that. USMC, which would be U.S., Mexico, Canada. But it'll probably or possibly be just USM. It'll be United States and Mexico. Yes or no? Are you Canada will come along. Uh, well, we hope they will. Uh, he's also threatened at this time to impose tariffs on cars, just Canadian cars, not anybody else, just Canada. Uh, anyway, it's on and on and on. Typical Donald Trump stuff. But what I- impact, if any, is this going to have on the negotiations? Let's ask Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Ian, thanks for the time. Great to have you with us again today. My pleasure, Bill. We have this uh, this uh, self-imposed deadline that's hanging over our heads right now, and yeah. Trump threatening auto tariffs once again. And uh, this is not the first time that he's tried to, to act tough and, and suggest that he's shunned uh, the prime minister and, and on and on it goes. I mean, it's not like Trump to actually fabricate stuff, so we don't know where he's going on this. But is this going to have an impact at all on the discussions that are going on? I hope so. I, I really do hope so. Um, let me explain. And I did watch the entire press conference, and you're right, it was his usual rambling on. And I think a lot of people get um, uh, uh, start to focus on his rambling digressions and going around around the mulberry bush uh, rather than focusing on the underlying uh, strategic issues. He has the pen to sign or reject the deal and impose tariffs. There's no way around that. No matter how much we may dislike him, um, how much we may hate him. That is a re- the reality in which we are in right now. And before I get to your question, I, I just want to say to all those, and there's a lot of people who support the Prime Minister, quote, I'm going to stand up for Canada. Is there any one of those Canadians in Canada who thinks it's working? That it's going down the right road to where we want to go? I don't think anyone, not a single person, can argue this is going well or that it's going in the direction we want. And that is not to say that we should roll, you know, fall down on the floor prostate before him. It just says that it's very clear watching him and listening to him. He has developed a real bee in his bonnet, a real strong dislike of Mr. Trudeau and company. And I think, I think... It's fair to say it probably stems from the fact that they have two very different worldviews. Trudeau is a progressive, and, and Trump is a conservative. And, and the government of Canada, meaning the Trudeau government, has been really pushing that whole idea that they're very progressive, and they use the word progressive a lot. It's not me using that word. And, and this has, and in the negotiations, I mean in the context of the NAFTA negotiations, and, and I think that this, and plus the speeches that Christian Freeland gave, two separate speeches, in Washington, not Ottawa or somewhere else. Uh, sorry, one was in Toronto, one was in Washington. And uh, this also has got under his skin. And now he's, it's almost become they're in a personal, uh, you know, uh, trap of each other. Where they're circling around each other, and they just can't seem to break out. It's very personal now. That's very obvious. Very personal. And it, I, I, I'd like to point back to, you know, because they were seemingly cordial anyway the first yes, time or yes. two they met, but it was at that G7. And, and uh, when yes. when Trump, but I mean, in, in fairness, I mean, you know, when they asked uh, Trump before he got on his plane, basically said that we're very close to a deal that Canada's made some major concessions on dairy and a few other yes. things. And Trump, and he then he goes off and Trudeau says, we did not do that. And so he called him out, and that's that's what started the, the the Twitter tirade. I think so too. I do, and he certainly doesn't like being called out. And it comes back to our separate previous conversation you and I have had on this. Um, I'm very much of the Kissinger worldview that you don't criticize other leaders. Uh, if you have differences of opinion, I mean, you don't criticize them publicly. If you have differences of opinion, you raise them behind closed doors. You don't try to embarrass them publicly. And I think that's where we went off the rails. And, uh, and, you know, I'm acknowledging, you know, that he's a bully and he's a, you know, he says nasty things. But we have to deal with that in the world of realpolitik. Realpolitik says he is the president and not some person we imagine we would like to have as a, the president of the U.S. That's not in the cards. We have to deal with the cards we've been given. That's what realpolitik says. So if we have objections to him, we should be raising them privately, not publicly, knowing it will set him off, and he will go off on these tangents. And I think, and again, I'm not trying to exonerate Trump. That's not my point. 
if our end goal is to get a signed deal, whatever we're doing in Ottawa is not working. It is a monumental failure. Now, if indeed our goal is not to get a deal, but it's just to keep poking him in the eye to make ourselves feel good, well, then it's a wonderful strategy. I just think that the purpose of us being there in negotiations is to actually come up with a deal, a closed signed deal. And we are not going down that road. It's clearly going down the opposite road, a road that's going to end in failure, unless we can somehow turn it around in this death spiral uh, by doing something dramatic, what Richard Nixon used to call the bold stroke. And I don't see any bold strokes coming out of Ottawa. Not that there aren't any to do, but I don't see them coming out because although we, um, we all note that Trump has obviously got a real deep B in his bonnet about Trudeau, I think it's very fair to say that Trudeau equally and the people around him have an equally deep uh, 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 anger or distrust or dislike of Trump, so it's it is reciprocal. It's reciprocal. There's reciprocity here. Oh yeah, both both sides are each other. Yeah, they're both <laughs> dipping into the bombast vat here to, to oh. and, and tossing bombs at each other. But exactly. but Ian, how do you deal with the misinformation? And Trump did it again yesterday when he was ranting about Canada and saying, "Well, their tariffs are too high." Well, you know, our David Aiken, our, our global bureau chief, he did some checking. Canadian tariffs are half the size of American tariffs. I mean, that's that's not true. It's simply untrue. But that's what he's trying to do to substantiate his point of view that uh, that right. we're being unfair. Uh, a, I agree with you, and B, and I've had people write me on this and say, you know, this very point, and and my answer has been, they could every country controls who, whatever person or goods they want to come into that country. I mean, we we forget that fact. Every country is sovereign under the United United Nations Charter and under the rules of the international community. In other words, Canada. Only Canada and the, our representatives, called the Governor of Canada, determine what people can enter into Canada who are not Canadians, uh, whether they come in as refugees or they come in as landed immigrants or people applying for permanent citizenship or they are only coming in as a student visa or, or, or a tourist visa. Find it. That's the domain of the government. They also have the complete exclusive authority to determine what goods will come in and at what rate. The American government, their, their agent for the Americans, which is now the Trump administration, has determined, rightly or wrongly, that they believe that the tariffs being charged by Canada are too high. And that's their right. I mean, they control whoever goes into the American market, just as Canada controls whatever comes into the Canadian market. And that's just a reality. And so what were uh, many of the objections to Trump are we don't like his arguments. Well, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. He could actually stand up and say, I have no arguments against Canada coming in, but I don't want them coming in anyways. And he still has the authority to impose tariffs, negotiate, including no deal at all. That's what I think we failed to uh, realize in this. He has, no pun intended, the trump cards on the U.S. side of what will go into the states. Of course we have the trump card of what will come into Canada. The problem is... We want access much more to the American market than the Americans want to the Canadian market. And we, we don't really want to acknowledge that. We keep saying, look, it's, it's equal, equal, fair is fair. You know, they want access to us, we want access to them. But the reality is, no, we need access a lot more badly to the American market than they do to the Canadian market, which means we've got to compromise. And if we don't, and we can say, no way, no way, well, then we will end up without a NAFTA agreement, and we will suffer the consequences that have been estimated and calculated. One is a collapse in the Canadian collapse, a very significant uh, depreciation in the Canadian dollar, which will hit every last one of us because all of us buy stuff at the grocery store, cucumbers and, and, you know, and so forth. And uh, so we will bear the brunt of the price. Or we do rail politique and say, look, we don't like this person, but we're still going to do business with him. We're still going to come to a deal. We're still going to, we're probably going to have to compromise because it's in our strategic self-interest to have a deal. And, and that's the, what I call the rail politique school or the Henry Kissinger school. You, de- you can negotiate with people who you think are completely odious and disgusting. You've talked about this in the past, and I want to, in light of some of these uh, new uh, statements that are being made from both sides here, 
Uh, these That's Trudeau and that's Trump in this corner and over in this yeah. corner. But let's face it, this is really Christy Freeland and Robert Lighthizer. And and I, I know that the uh, U.S. ambassador to uh, Canada, Kelly Kraft, yesterday said, like, yeah, I heard what the president said, but she said Freeland and, and Lighthizer get along just fine. And and they seem to, to get along. And that's that's where a deal is going to be made up anyway. I know Trump has to sign off on it, as, as mm-hmm. the Canadian Parliament does. Mm-hmm. But if those two don't get together and come up with something, there's nothing to sign anyway. I agree with you, but as you pointed out, at the end of the day, whatever they negotiate still has to be signed off and approved by their respective leaders. So if Lighthizer produces something that uh, that Trump doesn't agree with, no matter how rational or reasonable it is, it's not going to happen. And we know, because he said publicly so many times, and has been reported widely, it's a, there's no mystery to what's going on. They want a concession on dairy. And they want concessions, apparently, or it's less clear on this one, on the investor dispute mechanism. And the Canadian side has leaked that the, um, that they're, uh, the Americans are also demanding opening up cultural industries, although there's no evidence of that that the Americans really are. I think there's some spin there. So my point is, out of all the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of industries that exist in this country, we're talking about really one industry. We're talking about the dairy industry. And we can do something on investor dispute. The Mexicans did, by the way. And I'm not saying we'll get all of what we want, but I'm sure we can get uh, some of what we want. And and then it really comes down to one single, simple, not so simple, but singular variable. Are we going to blink? Are we going to concede um, on dairy uh, to the Americans, given that it's so important to those critical Rust Belt states? And then, the, And if we aren't, well, then what we're saying is we're going to let the NAFTA deal which is absolutely essential to the well-being of all Canadians and the totality of the Canadian economy, we're going to let it go down the tubes to say, in order to protect and save 9,000 dairy farmers. And I just think that this is madness on steroids. I, I just think I can't imagine going, you know, if you're going to lose NAFTA and, and you know, lose it on something big and really, really, really important, Losing it over 9,000 dairy farmers out of 37 million Canadians. I mean, this is nuts. The dairy farmers don't even represent 5% of all the farmers in Canada. In other words, 95% of farmers in Canada are not protected under supply management. So they're a minority, the dairy farmers, are a minority even amongst farmers. And farmers are only 2% of the GDP of Canada. 98% 98% of us don't work in agriculture. So I'm saying, what on earth are we doing? We're in the digital economy, the 21st century, and here we are defending an 18th century or 19th century economy that represents 5% of farmers and 2% of, uh, of uh, GDP. I mean, not, not dairy. That's the totality of agriculture is 2% of GDP. And the milk industry is probably one-tenth of 1% of Canadian GDP. So you couldn't find a more unimportant and trivial industry than this one. And yet we're willing to march over the cliff into the valley of the shadow of death. March the 600, onward, onward. We're determined to march into the valley of the shadow of death to save 9,000 dairy farmers. This does not make any sense whatsoever. As I was uh, finishing off reading the Woodward book, uh, Fear, uh, over the weekend, uh, and there was a, uh, a two-line segment that, that Woodward didn't make a whole lot of, but it just it, it was a eureka moment for me as I was reading this. And he talked about firing off some of the people he didn't like and putting Wilbur Ross in commerce and hiring Lighthizer to be his chief negotiator for trade, not just for NAFTA, but for trade. Uh, and wow. one of the reasons he did that, apparently, according to Woodward's book, is that Lighthizer is a vocal opponent of the dispute management system that was in place yeah. in the current NAFTA deal. That was, yeah. that was his thing. Uh, so it seems to me as if he's entrenched about that, we're yeah. entrenched about supply management. And yeah. uh, both sides are going to have to say, okay, I'll do this if you do this. And I don't know that they're there yet. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I agree. Those are the two critical issues. No question about it. And it, and just, just uh, to, I didn't realize that uh, the book had uh, brought that out that he was. It's, it's, it's only two lines in in, in a paragraph. Well, fascinating. Yeah, because it, it just kind of glossed it over. But yeah. I thought, whoa, that, but does this ever matter now? But just for the benefit of your of your listeners, um, this dispute mechanism, this this idea of a dispute mechanism body that's independent of the government of the day, and it's not staffed by uh, politicians or partisans, but staffed by independent trade economists and bureaucrats and so forth and lawyers. Um, this is an idea that's been become very uh, popular in um, 
in not just in uh, the Republican Party, but in the United States uh, amongst the trade people and governors and so forth. There's a lot of unhappiness with the trade dispute mechanism because they feel that it's a, a mechanism that other countries have used successfully against the U.S. So what I'm trying to say is it's not just Donald Trump and Lighthizer that are opposed to it. I strongly support it because it stops, I believe, other countries from cheating. I want every country to have a dispute mechanism so that when that country cheats, all countries cheat, by the way, we cheat, the Germans cheat, everybody cheats on trade, then you have a mechanism to, to go after the cheaters. And that's why I'm such a big believer in this. But I, I want to get across the idea that it's not just two people in the U.S. that are opposed to a, a dispute mechanism. There's an increasing number of people in the whole trade arena who, uh, in the U.S., I'm talking, Americans, who really don't like uh, trade dispute mechanisms because they think that they're used by other countries and other companies outside of the U.S. to attack American interests. And that's why they've been pushing back so hard. Uh, I'm, I'm not even going to delve too deeply into his comments about uh, the, the negotiator, i.e. Christopher Freeland. Yeah. Uh, my, my feeling on that, you know what, if, if she was on the other side, he'd be praising her. I mean, uh, uh, anybody who's read even part of Donald Trump's book about, you know, the art of the deal, uh, yeah. that's the kind of negotiator he wants on his side. So I can understand why she gets under his skin. Uh, and, and But that's fine. But at the same time, uh, they're getting their marching orders. I mean, I think she's a very, very intelligent woman. I think Lighthizer's is. a very intelligent man. Yes, he is. But uh, let's face it. He's already taken one potential deal to the president, and the president ripped it up and said no. So, yeah. you know, he knows exactly where he's got to go here. Yeah. I, I, I think you just nailed it. I think, you know, the, the, uh, the tragedy in this thing is we have two very deeply emotionally committed leaders. And I don't mean that they're crazy. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying they, you know, Justin Trudeau tries to come across as the rational, reasonable guy. He is just as ideologically uh, uh, committed to his progressive agenda as as Trump is to his uh, agenda. So Absolutely. There's, there's no doubt. They're both hardcore ideologues, in my view. They are not, you know, the art of the compromise, which was the sort of the traditional liberal uh, position that politics is the art of the, com of the uh, possible and the art of compromise. Lester Pearson famously said that. I don't believe the truth is in that space. So you've got two ideologues at the top. And then you've got these very two extremely competent technocrats, in the best sense of the word, underneath them. And I'm talking Lighthizer and Christia Freeland. And, uh, and, and so we've got two really good people <laughs> on the file in the room negotiating, reporting up to two hotheads. To be, but now I know most people don't think of Trudeau as a hothead, but anybody who's willing to sell out the country and let the country go down the tubes for 9,000 farmers, I call a hothead. In my language, in my vocabulary, I, I'd like to think what they're calling each other's boss behind closed doors. <laughs> I, there may be a lot more kinship there between the two than we're aware. Ian, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank Ian you. Ian Lee from the Sprout School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML.